interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Kerry Edelman Show. Welcome to The Carrie Edelman Show. I am super excited today to bring on the award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Mike Sager. So we're going to do a nice introduction for him in a moment. I just want to introduce people to my show if you're a first-time listener. Um, he's going to be one of the amazing people I've had the op- opportunity to interview. Um, some of the people I've had on my show, I focus mostly on people in entertainment, pop culture, have included national musicians and bands. Um, I'm starting to do some interviews with people behind the scenes, mastering engineers, CEOs of um, music labels. So it's going to be really cool to bring him on today. So if you're tuning in, uh, you can create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. And a little other background about my show. I have a degree in um, psychology, a doctorate degree. And one of the things I'm really passionate about, too, is just interviewing. That's definitely my kind of bread and butter, so to speak. Um, So I wanted to combine my passion for pop culture and entertainment with interviewing to really create a unique forum and bring individuals on to share their unique life story. As we know today, unfortunately, especially with the circumstances in the pandemic now, I really want to be able to support people, have them come on, promote their products, get their name out there. So that's what this show is about, is you learn about these individuals and you also get an opportunity to check out, you know, what they're doing, whether it's a new CD, a new book out. So that's another reason I really wanted to focus on supporting these individuals. Okay, so although I mentioned I have a background in psychology, I always throw out there that my show is purely an entertainment show. We're not going to be doing therapy or any type of analysis. However, sometimes if it is appropriate, we might be talking about psychological concepts, um, especially since that stuff does cross over into the entertainment industry, especially when it comes to mental health. Um, So if it's appropriate, we might bring that stuff up. So let's do this. Let's do a nice introduction for Mike Sager, and then I will bring him on. As I mentioned, he's a best-selling author. His books have been both New York Times and LA Times bestsellers. He's also a award-winning reporter and journalist. He has been called the beat poet of American journalism, and his career is just massive. For more than 40 years, he has worked as a writer for the Washington Post, GQ, Rolling Stone, Esquire. The list goes on and on. In 2010, he won the American Society of Magazine Editors National Magazine Award for Profile Writing, and also more than 10 of his articles have been optioned for and or have inspired television movies and feature films such as Boogie Nights. Um, As I mentioned, he's an author. He has over a dozen books out. We'll talk about some of those today, but definitely Google him. You'll find a ton of information on him. He's also the editor and publisher of his company titled The Sager Group, um, which presents multimedia artists and writers. They offer so many different types of services, so you can visit them at The Sager Group, and that's S-A-G-E-R dot net. All right, so let's bring Mike on. How are you, hey, Mike? How are you? Good. I'm welcome. well. How are you? I'm okay. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you on today and uh, let you share your story with everyone. So, how are you making out right now with this unfortunate pandemic we're in? Well, other than the lack of human contact and the reliance on my own cooking, I'm basically living the same life <laughs> that I always live. Um, okay. I've never really enjoyed traveling or meeting people, though I've spent the last 42 years doing it. Um, I'm, <laughs> as a writer, I'm really a person who likes to type 
And I always have a fun time explaining to my to students that sort of a writer wears two hats. You know, one's a writer that kind of wants to be in a dark room by themselves scribbling, and then the other person is, you know, out there supposed to be meeting people, asking questions. And I found that it's very rare that, uh, you know, a person is naturally both. Okay. Um, one is kind of a, a person who's dedicated to a lot of introspection, and one is a person who likes to be out there and meeting people and understanding the world. Um, so luckily it's almost been like uh, the reporting and the meeting people is like the fodder to bring home. So I, I kind of put on my, my, my war clothes and I go out mm -hmm. and I guess the funny thing is, is I've learned over the years that um when you force yourself to do something, you can be good at that too. Um, and I Definitely. think that one of the things that has been the hallmark of, of what I do is my ability to kind of understand people for what they are to themselves and to others. And um, so you got to get out of your house for that. Right. <laughs> Right, and I think as we as we get into the interview, I've I've done a lot of reading on you and your your life story, and just the amount of work you've done is tremendous and so interesting. And we're going to definitely get into it. And I think maybe now, you know, we could pull in a little bit. What you talked about is this concept of literary anthropology. Is that kind of what you're saying? Because that's kind of like you've described what you do. Is you know you go you put yourself out there. You're almost and not almost. You have actually lived with some of these really interesting people. Um, and then, like you said, you take it home and that's when you sit down and you, you put that together. Well, I guess, you know, uh, my first big influence, I'm not a natural journalist. I didn't set out to be a journalist when I was growing up at home. My family got the newspaper, but we didn't read it. We didn't discuss news or politics. It just wasn't that kind of thing. And uh, really I was a, a jock I played soccer and lacrosse, and that's really all I cared about. Wow. <laughs> all well, the way up to going to college. But, yeah, real quick, Mike, not gonna... to interrupt, but, but to interrupt real quick, because you're going to, because I want to really bring in your youth. So let's start out there then. So, and then we're going to build up to write. How do you get involved in this writing world and become such a, you know, a, a major component of it? So, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about you grew up in right, Charlottesville, Virginia. <laughs> Grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Was born in Charlottesville, oh. and uh, oh, okay. all of my my immediate relatives are from small towns that sort of are between Charlottesville and D.C. Um, and uh, my my closest first cousins, the Rosenbergs and the Myers, all still live out there. And I was there recently visiting them. I love them a lot. Uh, so that's a shout out. I don't know if any are listening. But uh, grew up in Baltimore. My parents moved to Baltimore and brought us up there. And, uh, and you know, I was uh, just like every little kid. I wanted to be a, an athlete. I found one where you could be small. Uh, I played soccer and lacrosse. Uh, <laughs> I was well, not the largest person. I think I went to college at five foot three, 135 pounds. And, okay. <laughs> and in that way, I played soccer for Emory. Um, I probably have mm -hmm. my that 
my zeal for throwing myself at large men on playing fields uh, probably didn't help my spinal situation any, but, uh, <laughs> but oh, it was gosh. a great, it was a great sort of uh, way to kind of come of age. And um, it, it gave me confidence going into college because I had to get there before all the other freshmen. And I think just making that team um, and by the time all the freshmen arrived at Emory university, I felt like I'd been there a year already. And, Wow. I think that's what really started uh, off my career of being a little more confident and uh, doing stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I've always liked to type. My, my writing began with typing. Um, my, I would type in my grandfather's dry goods store. He would set me up in his office and I would just type. And then my other grandfather in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He was a lawyer. I would type in his place. In fact, I went all the way to law school thinking I wanted to be a lawyer, but what it really was, I just liked to type. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and real, let's, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll jump around a little bit. Um, right, so you get to Emory. What position really quick were you, um, and we'll get back to your typing, and then you're, unfortunately, you, you get into law school and you leave pretty quickly. Um, what position were you playing with soccer, and did you get a scholarship? Well, I went to a Division three school, so they like helped you with your. They helped you with your. I think it was the um, the stipend that went to housing or something like that. Um, okay. But I, you know, it's just as a high school kid, as a jockey kid, like your whole life is just like focused on like you're working to the next level and. You know, this was really back before people went running and jogging. And so I would, I would be running around the streets of my town in my, like, Converse tennis shoes with no, you know, <laughs> insoles or anything and just running, like, miles and hundreds of miles and doing millions of push-ups and to just training to be – because I just wanted to do this thing. And, right. Um, and then once I got there and did it, I sort of looked around at the larger world at Emory – and I did. I was one of four freshmen to make the varsity team. But then nice. I joined a fraternity, and my fraternity was in soccer finals, and there were 2,000 people who came to that game, and about 300 people would come to the Emory games. So I was like, screw this, man. And <laughs> so I, 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 I moved on from varsity sports, but I continued to play for the Atlanta Lacrosse Club and – I played soccer every day, and I stayed in shape, and it was important to me. But, but meanwhile, I was, I was in a new milieu. I was a poor student in high school. I had very low SATs. I was there by the skin of my nose. So I just worked really hard. Well, right, I think right, right. That I've learned, I learned over the years that, uh, I mean, I, my mother will tell you she was at the school like literally every other week because I couldn't spell, I couldn't do math. I was, you know, you know, I just, I had a different aptitude for things than what is important in, in conventional schooling, um, which is maybe more recognized today, but I was, you know, post born in 56, post World War II, everybody had to do the same thing and fit into the same cookie cutter. And I didn't. So when I got to, by the time I got to college, you know, other things started presenting themselves. And um, 
And one of the and, first and real, classes. Real quick, Mike. Let me just ask you a yeah. question because I mean, you did very well at Emory. You and I, I'm going to bring this up in a minute. I mean, you were um, you got into the Honor Society Phi Beta Kappa, which is unbelievable. Yeah, I, I got mean, a, is, uh, when I quit the soccer team. My the coach gave me a C in gym. And Jim was like a one-credit course or something, and I had a right. 4.0 at the time. So I was, I was, I had become a grade grubber late in life. But, um, so, uh, so but no, the, the the coach screwed up my 4.0. I'll, 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 oh I'll no! Was, I I think he's no longer with us, so I think it can be said that he was a bit of a racist, anyway, mm-hmm. who wanted to know early in the thing if I was a Jew. Um, are oh, you a God. Jew, Sega? Um, but anyway, so, that's uh, another experience was to be learned. Uh, right. So, <laughs> right. Going so when you life. were in, when you were in high school, Mike, and you, again, you're clearly, like you said, you're clearly someone who has demonstrated that it's about perseverance and hard work and and putting in probably for you a lot more, you know, uh, dedication and time than other people had to. Did you ever get to the point where you were? Un- understandably just really disheartened like I'm never going to get this where teachers you know coming at you saying you know you're, you're not going to amount to anything and if so how did you get to the point where you were like I'm going to overcome this and, and you get into a great college even though your SATs and I can relate to you we'll talk off the air if you want um, I can very much empathize with the experiences you're talking about so how do you overcome that if your mom like you said is there all the time and you're struggling and not just give up well, I think, first of all, one of my problems growing up might have been that my parents made me think I was greater than I was. Oh, okay. Maybe <laughs> that's everybody not else. Well, no, I mean, I, I think I, I grew up, uh, as many young, uh, oldest Jewish boys do, with an excess of self-esteem, which may or may not be sort of justified. Um, so I might have thought I was greater than I was, and then it was sort of a come up and to find out that I wasn't. And um, uh-huh. and then I think, as a journalist, every single person I've ever interviewed, I don't I don't know really where to start. So I you, you use the first third of the interview, and I start out saying, "So you were born in a log cabin," and I find out about their early life. And, right. Um, it's not the president of the class that I'm ever interviewing. Right. It's always the person who, like, had something to prove later. Mm-hmm. So I think toward the end of my high school experience, I fell in with a really nice crowd of people, and then I got to college, and I was kind of scared. And, frankly, I just worked hard. But I was also, I think what I possess is a, Ability to suss out situations and adapt is mm-hmm. something I'm good. I I realize that I'm good at. So, for instance, my situation would be everybody would eat dinner, then go to the library to study, and I they would just you know you go walk, you lollygag, you get you get coffee, you talk to friends, you study a little bit. I would just go straight to my room and study. So I'm always mm-hmm. the same. I'm home most home in some room. Um, and I would study for three straight hours. I'd rewrite my notes. I'd outline my underlines. I do all this like really like way more work than anyone had uh-huh. to do. But by the time those idiots got back at midnight after fucking around, you know, for six hours, 
And I, I could have done right. three hours of work. And I was like, my room was a cloud of pot smoke. Um, so I kind of got the reputation that people thought I didn't work. And, right. <laughs> um, and also things are like self-perpetuating too. You start learning to do things. I think I, I was so scared. I, I left no, no, no book unread. No, I did more than right. I had to do. And I think I'm still, as a journalist, I'm still doing more than I have to do. And, um, you know, that's kind of part of it. Um, you know, it's just like living up to things and then, I don't know, learning once you get past the herd that, and I wrote this about Kobe recently and some appreciations of him, but, um, there's a certain thing where you, if you can get out in front of the race where you don't worry about the rest of the people in the race. Right. And, um, once I could put myself there. I was just gone. You know, it's like, I don't care. I mean, would I like a MacArthur genius grant? Sure. You know, would I like a Pulitzer Prize? Sure. You know what I mean? But I think I've gotten enough of what I've gotten for the weird shit that I do. Like I found (laughs) a place where I could go and be me and I'm not competing with anyone you know, I like, no one does what I do. No one's ever, you know, really done it the way I do it. And, um, and, and so, but at the same time, I'm not doing it like they're doing it, which might be better recognized. You know what I'm saying? But Mm -hmm. I'm just doing me. I've been an early proponent of doing me. I'm like me in this body, being this person with these skills, applying it this way and doing the best I can you know, and always like a little bit harder. And, you know, my dad was an extremely hard worker when he, I mean, to the point where when he closed a pickle jar, you could not open it. When what he did tied you, your um, shoes. Yeah, tell us about your dad. An, what did he do? What did he do for a living? He was a, he was a small town OBGYN. Nice. And from okay. him, I got my ministerial abilities, which is something that I figured out has enabled the anthropologist person. So going back to your time order, what happened was in the first year of, of, of college, um, I took this great course. This is beginning anthropology. And, of course, the paper I wrote, Typical Job, the meaning of, you know, the cultural meaning of lacrosse in Baltimore. You know, <laughs> like you could say, you could see where I was there, right? I was still like, um, but... So it was this anthropology and Margaret Mead and her approach, which was, which, you know, she was like probably one of the worst writers I've ever read, but her approach to, to, to anthropology was so much different than what they had at the time, which were people who were like counting things. You know, she like was the first one to kind of like pull up a log at the fire and like kind of shut up and just be and and become accepted into the tribe and like similarly i've never known what questions to ask because i feel like one of the things that's wrong with journalism is people ask the wrong questions because they mm-hmm. have to prepare the questions before they go in so how can you know what to ask so i typically go in somewhere and don't say shit until the point that people are, like, wondering why I'm not asking things. 
Interesting. But that also okay. makes them want to tell you stuff, too. It's like an extended pregnant pause. But then you can ask relevant questions, like once you've, once you've hung around. And so that's the, kind of the basis for what I do. And also, I think, because I didn't read a lot of magazine stories before I became a writer um, in typical college student fashion. Um, and then all these things happened to me that was weird. So I just had to be a, prof- I had to learn on the job, but, um, I didn't really know how other people did stuff. And so I did it how it occurred to me. And then I started getting educated and I started, I knew what I was doing. So I started picking and choosing from the greats instead of like copying them. Right. Um, although look, you know, once I learned about Tom Wolfe and, Hunter Thompson and all that stuff. I would go through these periods when I was a young writer at the Washington Post and I'd be reading Tom Wolfe and everything I was writing was like trying to be Tom Wolfe and, uh, or, or somebody or somebody else. And then I remember David Marinus, um, who was the assistant to the, well, they call it the AME. Bob Woodward was the AME in charge of Metro at the Washington Post and, his assistant at one time was David Marinus, who's, you know, this superstar uh, writer of books um, and winner of awards and an excellent guy that people love. Um, but he once told me, as I was learning to be a writer, he said, Sager, whatever you write is either great or terrible. <laughs> uh, right, I, I actually yeah, how, I read that. <laughs> that's, that's from him. How, okay. Yeah, that's kind of however how it was. Um, you know, for a while there, uh, hopefully I don't write anything that's terrible anymore, but um, it was, a, I was, I was trying and I was trying on other people's techniques, but, you know, I think it's sort of like a musician. And for, for many years in DC, I, my best friends were musicians and they, you know, you, you, you learn the canon and you played them and then you, you got it all like as muscle memory and then you made it into your own. And I think that's sort of what any art is because, you know, people who are are constipated um, in their art, um, they're worried that there's never anything new. And um, the thing is, there there are infinite combinations, but maybe there isn't anything new. But it's it's a, it's new for you. And right. That's kind of something that I kind of concentrate on. So let's real quick. Let's pull in because you've said a lot of interesting things. Let's pull in now talking about how, you know, you took this anthropology course, like you said, Margaret Mead pulling up the log and just sitting there and kind of marinating and just listening and getting familiar with the surroundings and, you know, enmeshing yourself in them, so to speak. Your interest in typing, which I think is an interesting concept. And tell us a little bit about what did you like about typing, that, you know, you're doing this at your grandfather's houses, um, and what made you want to go into law school and then realize this is not for me? And then we can start to dive into how you got the job at the post, which is where you really sure. started to get your first, um, your, your stepping stone. Well, you know, 40% of my freshman class was pre-med um, at Emory university. And I think that was about the right number. Uh, I was definitely not pre-med, although I did spend a summer as a OR tech uh, a job. My dad got me and I was very, I think I was talented as an OR technician, the person that hands the instruments and you actually mm-hmm. play an active role in surgeries. And I also through the years would 
go with my dad to deliver babies late at night, especially during college when I was home. He would get a practice, so he'd have to go at night to induce labor in people so he could get to work the next day and have his, you know, office. Um, right. So I had an appreciation for all that stuff, but it wasn't going to be me. And so, you know, we were kind of the generation where the, uh, I didn't have an older brother, but the older brothers of our of our of my class, you know, they were like draft age. They were like hippies. They went to Vietnam. My, I was like the last year um, that got a draft number, but there was no draft. So that's where we were at. And um, okay. so we were in the generation of the early 70s where everybody before sort of had kind of like in that transition between you know, going to college and then becoming a hippie all of a sudden and people like dropped out and they, you know, lost their place and the, you know, the gap year became a gap life and, you know, all that stuff. And, and there were lots of people lost both on the, on the battlefield and just on the, on the home battlefield of, of all the strife that was going on, civil rights, you know, human rights, Mm -hmm. rights for young people, rights for women, like, so a lot of, then, then came the 70s, and we were trying to get more practical, it was sort of like, do your own thing, but have a profession to fall back on, and okay. uh, as a, as a person with verbal skills, it was like, okay, I'll, I could be a, I could, you know, I was a history major, so it was like, I could be a history professor, I could be a lawyer, or I could be a writer, and I really okay. wanted to be a writer, but, like, how do you become a writer? So, and then, like, you know, the parents kind of thing as well. Just get a, have a law degree to fall back on. You can have something to fall back on. And, it like, right. you know, I was pretty proud of all the advice or happy with all the advice my parents had given me up until then because I felt like, you know, for one reason or another, I ended up doing okay. And I was, I actually, you know, graduated, like, at a full 180 from where I graduated high school. Right. Um, but I didn't know what to do. So I just applied to law school. I, I knew I didn't want to go, but I went, I figured I could just gut it out. Um, and you got and into and I would excellent. become a writer. Right. And you got into an excellent law school. I mean, you got into Georgetown, which is, I mean, yeah, I excellent. got into more than just Georgetown, but that was the southernmost school because I refused to go be cold if I was <laughs> That's like really where my head was at. Like I got into better schools, I think even. Um, But where else did you get into, Mike? Like Northwestern is one that comes to mind. Like yeah, I'm going to fucking Chicago. Um, (laughs) So um, so anyway, so I just went there, and I remember I I go to law school. It's like summer. I take, I'm living in Arlington, Virginia. I take the subway. I'm wearing my like moccasins, no shoes, uh, like Indian moccasins, <laughs> no shoes, okay. no, no socks, shorts, and my t-shirt collection. Like the one I had gotten that summer going cross country in my VW van with my girlfriend. And I got this thing that said, do it on a donkey at the, uh, at the uh, Grand Canyon. <laughs> Right. So I got to George Georgetown Law School. I'm like, there are fucking people wearing ties, and then there are all these people who are complaining. They wanted to go to NYU, but they only got into Georgetown. 
Um, um, the only thing I enjoyed about law school was that my dad had gotten me this used IBM Selectric typewriter. So I would take my notes from from law school with the typewriter at home. You know, I typed them up, and that was it was a great typewriter. He didn't know enough to get me to kind of self-correcting, but it was really cool. Uh, I had that little ball, and it sounded really neat. And But I, like, just hated law school. And so we went, like, the first three weeks, and um, I, it was, like, Labor Day weekend. And I was I was living with my girlfriend at the time with a twin, and uh, I guess her twin sister came to visit us in Arlington, and uh, she found me sitting on the hood of my car, and I think I broke down crying, and Aww. I told her I hated law school, and she said, well, why don't you just quit? <laughs> and, you know, up until that point, like, I was the guy who never quit at anything. Like I was five foot three and I made the varsity soccer team. Like, you know, I was playing Mm -hmm. lacrosse against guys who were twice my size, you know, and then I would like hit them up the ass with a stick to make them foul across the line. I would like, I would do that. I mean, I was like going to do what I was going to do, but quitting was not a thing that was in that. You know, like, you don't quit ever. My, my father is not a, would never quit. He's like, he tightens the jar. And so, right. and there's kind of a long, interesting story, which is kind of funny, but maybe too long to get into. But I get this thing in mind where I have to go talk to the dean of, of a freshman. And, and my question formed is, is there a place in law school for someone who doesn't want to be a lawyer? And... Um, I, I went, made the appointment and went to see her, and there was this young woman they recently hired as a graduate to be, you know, she just graduated the year before. And, um, and you know, again, this was 1978, and okay. I go into her office in the fall, and I'm wearing my shorts, and she says, which was true, my, you have nice legs, you know, which she could <laughs> never have said then. Right, right, now. (laughs) And which I didn't take as anything but a compliment from a woman, which was fucking fine with me. But one thing I said was, I just thought to myself, this is the most important day of my life, and I've been going over this question in my head like 3,000 times. You know how you do. I'm going to ask her, is there a place for someone who doesn't want to be a lawyer? Is there a place? And the first thing she says is, you have nice legs. And I just said, hey, listen, I'm quitting. And I'm going to go be a writer, and I'm going to go work at the Washington Post. And thanks. <laughs> and the class has no. been overbooked anyway, and so they gave me back my money. And then I told my parents that they were saving a space for me in the next year, which was an outright lie. And so I embarked. I had to get a job, and I had to be fucking successful within a year. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, wow. you know, I'd lie to him. So my father let me keep the tuition, which I think was like eighteen hundred bucks for a semester or something. Okay. And and I also and I think the funniest thing from that time was, you know, first of all, you had to go to the library, and like I so I looked up all these publications, you know, and who I could apply yeah. to, and I didn't know shit. I mean, I remember going to an interview at this thing called the Spotlight 
which was okay. the, the, the newspaper of this thing called the Liberty Lobby, which, oh, sure. So I put on my interview suit, I my three, you know, go in there. And the guy's like talking about anti-abortion, pro-guns. It's, you know, it's like oh. the, this right-wing fucking think tank with a newspaper. And I'm like, sir, I'm a professional. I can write anything. You know, and then right. I, I remember I got an offer of this job to run a magazine called CB Alert. Remember, there used to be these CB radios, Breaker Breaker 1-9. They were offering me like $28,000 in 1978 to be the editor-in-chief of CB Alert magazine. I mean, I applied for it. But the, the, the funny thing was about this period of time was that there was no such thing as an answering machine. And right. I mean, like... Wealthy people had, like, um, you know, you could services, answering services. And this was my father had a beeper, but regular people didn't have a beeper. And so basically, you applied for jobs, which meant sending letters out. And then you had to sit in the house from nine to five and not move because somebody might call. Oh, my gosh, um, right. Right, right? Because, you, you right. know, what if you left? And um, through a fraternity brother, I got an interview with the Washington Post whose mom worked there. I failed the spelling and typing test, and they said I couldn't. Even though I had, a, like, a whole – I'd been editor of a bunch of things in college. I worked at this right. alt-weekly. I did photography you know, covers of the Alt Weekly, you know, I've been there for two weeks, I was like taking over the whole place, you know, I had my 3.98 Phi Beta Kappa bullshit, and like, this woman's like, sorry, you can't have a job, you can't spell, I was like, you know, 80 words a minute with 40 mistakes, you know, I mean, I just wasn't, you know, that, so they, they like, they said goodbye, and I'm like, no! (laughs) What do you have for me to do, do right? And I just kept do. calling back, and they gave me this la- lower job where you didn't need spelling or typing skills in the uh, this room called the wire room where there was, you know, there was no internet in those days. There were only teletype machines with wire mm-hmm. services, UPI, AP, Reuters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was thrown into this room with these. I don't know, 16 machines and an 18-inch ruler, and it was a little like Mickey and the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia. They're spitting out paper, and I've got to, you know, cut the paper, file the paper, you know, read it, figure out where it goes, take it around to people, all this shit. Um, But long story short, the very first night I'm there, there's a guy training me, and he disappears. It's like the, the shift is seven at night till three in the morning. And at oh about by 10 after two in the morning, the paper was closed, meaning all night starting from deadline, they're like making versions of the newspaper. They're different editions. Mm-hmm. And each new edition had corrections or changes. And then the last edition was the one that was going on like, mostly on the newsstands and that kind of stuff. But so after like 10 after two, it was closed. So about two o'clock I got, well, this little machine in the corner of the room was one one of these thermal printers. 
it would make it was like really anemic. Like some of them were like, like you hear in the old things, like the Walter Cronkite tapping. Some of them were like these grinding, like the AP speed wire was like, I mean, it was such a cacophony of sounds. I wish I could do all this, but it was like, and uh, you know, all they all had different things. And it was in a closed room with a glass window and a high stool. And I would like, and the newsroom, like all these famous people was, on the other side of the glass and I would just like sit there and like with all this noise and then and be watching like people what they were doing and me and then I would have to go around to the whole paper to like hand out their wire so like it kind of was getting to know people but this was just the first night so I'm there there's all this and, and at some point like the cacophony winds down and it's kind of getting a little quiet and all of a sudden this thermal printer in the corner of the room, the anemic thermal printer was the Reuters wire. <laughs> and it was going ding, ding, ding. So I go over there. Uh, I guess I have my 18-inch ruler in hand, my scepter. Um, and it said, urgent, urgent. So I'm thinking, oh, this must be urgent. And then it was like Dateline Vatican City. And I guess this was like, this was the fall of 1978. And there was a pope died, and they nominated a new pope, and then he died after a few days, and they haven't had to nominate yet another pope. So when the second pope, I think it was John Paul, then John Paul II maybe or something, Um, but then when the first guy died, when the second guy died, the guy who was only pope for a few days, nobody was expecting it. But it was like urgent, 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 that dude is dead. The pope is dead. And I looked around, Roger Saucier, who was supposed to be training me, um, who earlier that night I'd had lunch with him and a couple other guys, and they said the way to become a reporter is to be a really good copy boy. And God bless Roger. I'm still friends with him on Facebook, but he remained part of the administrative staff for like 30 years at the Washington Post, Um, never became a reporter. Not that I think he wanted to or not, but I don't think that was going to be the route. But that's what they told me was the route. But anyway, so ding, 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 urgent, urgent, urgent. No, Roger, what should I do? Well, it's got a foreign tagline. Maybe I'll take it to the foreign desk. So I, I like literally ran because early in my time at the Post, it was like an athletic contest. There's another time I rode my, a motorcycle 60 miles in the dead of winter down I-95 to get to this bus crash. I mean, I, I, it was like an athletic event to me, like reporting in the beginning, even as a copy boy running, running back. It was an acre square newsroom, so there was a, a lot of territory to cover. Like I remember running back and forth to the clip file on a, on a, during a political uh, election or something. But anyway, take the clip, take it to Joe Ritchie, who's the foreign editor, and he reads it, and he balls it up, and he's like, fuck. And then... About one minute later, I'm, I'm standing there, and the guy who's in charge of the newsroom is picking up the phone, and he's saying, stop the presses. And we had to fucking redo the front, a story on the front page. Oh and there's, my like, gosh. one reporter there and me and a couple editors, and I was, like, running back to get the clips for the guy and, <laughs> like, running here and running there and, and bringing him stuff and... That was my first fucking night. That's crazy. Right. 
Well, you were so definitely. I was like, a, I was a true believer. That's where I was for the next six years. I, it took me three years before I had a day shift. Um, I remember getting now, out at six o'clock and not like, knowing what to do. In addition to being at the post, were you doing anything on the side to also make money, or were you getting enough from the post as the copy boy? No, I was making like a good salary. Oh, that's great. Um, and okay. then I started freelancing, and I was doing like three stories a week. So I was actually, you know, there's a story for how I became a reporter, but one big motivation for the post was they were paying me like as if I had two jobs. Because yeah, freelancers made decent money in those days, and every time right. I wrote a freelance story, I got paid, and then I was getting 40 hours a week plus benefits, plus time right. and a half. You used to get two and seven-eighths time to work on Christmas, which I used to like oh to joke gosh. was like what any Jew should be doing on Christmas, getting two <laughs> and seven-eighths time. Right. Um, some of my more Ivy League uh, colleagues used to look at me strange when I said shit like that. I guess I was an early breaker of the PC. Um, but there you um, go. <laughs> so, so no, that's great. So evidently you're you're doing well there. Like you said, it took you a while to break into a story, and is that where you start to get involved with the U.S. agriculture story that well, helps yeah, you get to that next position? Yeah, I was well. I was doing stories and and working, and it became like this thing where I would get off work, go home, grab a few hours of sleep, put on like my three-piece Glenn Platt interview suit, and come to work and work on stories. And then I I and I psychologically in my mind it was important that I would be in different clothes for each shift, so I would. I would be back to my T-shirt collection to work in the copy aid station, and um, and and change into my you know threads to be a reporter. And I would like mm-hmm. whoever reporter wasn't there, I would use their desk and I get stories. And I did have a good, I was a good good typer. I could you know I, I could always, as Woodward would later say, spin a good yarn. Like I just okay. know. I've always just known how to make something bright. I don't, you know, that's the talent side. Um, but then, you know, working with these people who are the best in the business of journalism, you know, I was, I had, and I was a history major, so I understood this stuff. You know, it was just like writing a big history paper that was happening, and you talk to people instead of reading things. You know, I, like, totally right. understood the whole concept. And then, you know, I, I've always been, I don't know, I'm, but anyway, what happened was, so I did stories and stories and stories, and eventually I was promoted from copy boy in the wire room to copy boy in the city desk, which got me answering phones from these people. They would call up like two in the morning, drunk, and you'd like put them on hold and come back, and they were still talking. But sometimes they gave you tips, too. You got news tips. So what happened was, there was a huge fire, I think it was, in town, and we, the Post could send out, like, dozens and dozens of reporters, and they would do, like, the old school where they'd call back and ask for a rewrite, and they'd dictate a memo or a story kind of thing. So mm-hmm. there were all these reporters out covering, and they were all calling in, dictating, and there was only, like, three or four women in the dictation department. Um, so this one writer was calling back, and I was there – and I just said, give it to me. 
and I took the dictation, which, A, you know, I had the spelling and typing issues, but I didn't really. I was fine. I, you know. um, right. But I, I did. And we were typing on typewriters then, too, as paper, by the way. But mm-hmm. so I typed up this guy's memo and took it to the editor, and he fucking yelled at me and told me it wasn't my job to fucking do that. You know, by this time, I had all these stories in. People were, like, joking with me about, oh, we saw your brother in here because – you know, it's like, oh, or, or what are you, are you living, do you have a, ro- a bedroll under the desk? You know, I mean, everybody <laughs> was like, I was trying to just make it crazy that I wasn't hired. And then I remember my friend, Peter Melman and I from Seinfeld, who went on to yeah, be a writer for Seinfeld. Him. Yeah, let's talk but about him. But he was a copy bit. boy too, and we were both trying to get internships, and neither of us got one. And so I'm just writing, writing, writing. And then so about a week after this whole thing, with I, get, I got you know, yelled at for taking initiative to take the fucking dictation that a monkey could take, um, right. I, I got this tip on the phone um, uh, from this woman at the Department of Agriculture who said just basically every time the garbage men come here to take away the garbage, they're also going into the storage room and stealing furniture and typewriters and TVs and putting them on the truck and taking them away. And so I typed up this whole tip and um, walked over with it to the editor who yelled at me, who's a good guy and and yelled at me in great ways for many years. Um, (laughs) But uh, he like said, what do you want? And I like said, nothing, never mind. I was like, fuck you. And I just went home put on my suit and then went down to the department of agriculture, not having slept and um, sat in this woman's windowsill. Cause it was like this old ass building overlooking the courtyard of the department of agriculture. And so, you know, the walls are like super thick. So you could actually like sit on a windowsill. And right. so I sat on her windowsill until the, the, the garbage guys came and I, I witnessed them do that. They took out, you know, furniture and other shit and put on their truck. And so then I go back, I told Woodward, because Bob Woodward was the boss, and I wrote a lot of feature stories, um, but this was something he could really relate to. This was like an investigation. Mm-hmm. So we wrote up the first story. Then the next day I went out looking for, you know, where the furniture was going. I ended up finding it. I went to all, all these dumps around the area, <laughs> oh all this gosh. shit. Right. Remember, it was the, it was I think it was the second day, second day story had been written, and oh well, I've got it up on my wall. Let's see what what, what was the date. I'm walking, walking, walking. It's boring on podcast, isn't it? So it was on Wednesday. It must have been Tuesday, September 11th. Um, I came into the office after going around all these dumps. And the last one I'd been to, I remember, was Blue Plain Sewage Treatment Plant, which was a sludge plant. And I had left my shoes in the hallway where the elevators were because I stunk of sludge and sewage. And I, so I, I walked into my office, and I was using a desk, and I had only socks on and my three-piece Glenn Platt interview suit. And um, that's when... And I guess the, the, the second day story in the paper was um, 
the the Senate uh, the General Accounting and Office had started an investigation, and um, so essentially I had created an, a, a, a U.S. government investigation over this investigative story I'd found. And it's kind of like that's the holy grail of the Washington Post, you know? Right. Like you get you right. you get Nixon impeached, you know? That's like that's like what it took. So. Woodward called me to his office and, you know, prior to this, you know, I have to say, besides leading the campaign of wearing the different clothes, like mm-hmm. I applied for, I was in the union. So every, anytime they, they had a job open, like city editor, assistant city editor, I would apply. I applied for every okay. reporter's job, every editor's job. If like, if so, there was this thing called the Rockwell room where they had the candy and the coffee machines and it was sort of like, a, you know, if someone, if like, I remember the guy in charge of the internships going in there and I like was watching him and then I went in there and like, don't mean to corner you or anything, but you know, I mean, I was like on a fucking campaign, you know, right. I was doing everything <laughs> I could. And th- this was like 11 months after I'd gotten there, Woodward calls me into his office and I'd been to see him a bunch of times already asking, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Can I be a reporter? Can I be a reporter? Can I be a reporter? And he said to me, and I'm very bad at quoting people in my life, but this I remember, um, you've done what you, I said you had to do. You've proven yourself indispensable to the Washington Post. Nice. And he hired me. And then the next thing I said, which like is typical of me and teachers, because I'm really never good with the teachers, and I always say the wrong thing. I said <laughs> to him, does this mean I get a raise? That's the first thing out of my mouth. I don't know. I said, right. thank, I don't even know if I said thank you first. Um, and I also didn't know that part of the complication of this whole thing was that they were paying me way too much. And thirdly, I didn't know anything about the concept of a slot. Like there was no slot for a reporter, but he was deputizing me in the field as a reporter. So, and so later I would have to have a little – shitty fit about like I want a desk I want a Rolodex I want to like I want my name tag you know that I want the trappings like because I was still moving around from desk to desk but that was the day that Woodward hired me and I and then I asked him do I get a raise and he says yeah you can have the same thing I get a dollar a year I'll never forget <laughs> that I thought he was going <laughs> to fire me like after high I thought he was so mad at me I mean, I guess I didn't say what he expected me to say. Um, but then again, like I said, I've never been good at schmoozing with the grown-ups. Um, right, right. So that was, wow. that, was that. And then, like, <laughs> and then it became a cute thing to the owner of the paper was Don Graham. And mm-hmm. uh, he was the son of Catherine Graham and Philip Graham. And he had gone to Harvard and uh, – after Harvard, he enlisted in, in, in the Army and went to Vietnam and was an infantryman. He was kind of, then he came back and he was a D.C. police officer. And then he did all the jobs at the Post before moving up into the white carpeted offices. And so he liked that sort of bootstraps mentality. And I guess what I represented was I was the first white male of no discernible minority to be like field promoted from copy boy to reporter in over 20 years. Oh my gosh. And wow. So it then became kind of cute 
to Don Graham that that had happened. I remember he had me, I'd been working all night. He had me at some, some dinner in his white carpeted dining room upstairs. And, um, you know, with all these like other people from the post who are like grownups. And, and I remember getting there and Graham's like, so Sager, tell us how you became a reporter. You know, and I, I said, if I'd known I'd been the uh, the entertainment, I would have prepared something. You know, again, typical. But <laughs> but because of Graham, like I did all the stations of the journalistic cross. I did night police. I did night cops. I did. I mean, cops and courts. I did rewrite. Like studied under this guy Martin Weil, who's like the best rewrite guy in history. I'm, wow. I believe he's still there. Um, Sorry to bother you at a time like this. Hello, this is Martin Weil from the Washington Post. Sorry to bother you at a time like this. But, I mean, I just, I mean, I still kind of, I learned that. I mean, you know, I learned from, like, all the greatest people. Christopher Dickey sat, like, on one side of me. You know, his dad was James Dickey, you know, who wrote Deliverance, Poet Laureate of the, of the United States. You know, there's everywhere you turn, there was some amazing person. Um, wow to learn from and so I was like a super true believer Mm -hmm. for a number of years and uh you know even even after the whole Jenna Cook incident that would take an hour to talk about but um there just came a time for me when I'd learned all the hard news and news features that I could and I wanted to put more into my stories I wanted to be more literary you know, like at the newspaper, they don't care how many syllables the word in the first sentence has. You're just uh-huh. supposed to fucking write the story, you know. And so that was good because I learned how to write on deadline and write and not mm-hmm. have writer's block and how to, like, do all the work, the facts, you know, all the stuff it takes to do, you know, the complex stuff that I went on to learn how to do. But it all starts with, it's like, I'm a real crawl, walk, run kind of guy. I'm not like a gifted high IQ person who can just do anything. I have to like muddle through and get up to speed. And then I can take off like some big fat duck or something. I don't know. I love, you know what? No, I love that analogy because I can, like I said, I can sometimes, I can just totally empathize because I'm very similar to that. And, right, once you get the hang of it, but it takes you a while to get there, you're, like you said, you're flying. But that's a great, yep. that's a great, uh, I like that analogy you use, so that's cool. And it also okay, means, so, though, that you're not, you didn't cut corners to get there either. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's about the work. And yep. it's always been about the work and about the repetition. And, you know, a far more um, popular journalist than I, and a far more genius like person Malcolm Gladwell wrote about outliers and yep, you know the I basic term is yep. simple the thing is simple about you spend all that time doing something you better get good at it and <laughs> right. um or you're going to get good at it or if the situation's correct and you know that's kind of where we end up um where it's just like this this is the thing that's always been most important to me in my life until I had a kid, you know, and then it was a strong second. (laughs) Um, And, 
actually requires a lot more work than a kid at some point. They're only like intensive for 18 years or so. So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going on like 40 some years. Um, so, yeah, so start to pull in, and we'll talk a little bit about your son later who is also involved in your company, um, who does documentaries and all the film aspects. But it sounds like we're getting to the tail end of your time at the Post. Talk a little bit about how you met Walt Harrington, who was another huge mentor and probably one of the most profound individuals um, in your career. Talk a little bit about him and how he introduced you to Tom Wolfe. Um, and eventually transition out of the post into magazine writing, which is what you eventually focused on. Yeah, I mean, Walt is that person for me. Um, um, I guess, you know, it's funny, we, we met Cute. Uh, he, had, he was coming in for an interview, and he was being taken around the newsroom, and I was on the phone, when he came and I, I sort of waved a little as he was coming by and I raised an eyebrow, which is something I do, my right eyebrow. And <laughs> he smiled and raised an eyebrow back. Huh. And I don't know, we had a moment of connection there. And then, you know, it would happen occasionally, you know, people would come through the, the, the newsroom and you don't know if you'd ever see them again. But next thing you know, he was back and he was kind of like, assigned as an editor of the good writers. And so I guess he went to my clips and we had a anointed time to sort of sit and meet. And uh, I remember we, it was back by the library, uh, the morgue as they would call it in, in exciting journalism shows. And um, he said to me, so have you ever read Tom Wolf? And I was like, who? And he's like, Hunter Thompson, Gay Talese, hoo, hoo, hoo. And the next day brought me in The New Journalism by Tom Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took it home and I read the first, you know, four chapters, which are essentially his sort of like, you know, his manifesto about new journalism. And it was like the feature writers versus the scoop slobs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it happens more today. Like people, oh, this is the thing I've been looking for. You know, it, today we're like able to bunch up off into communities because we have all this stuff that we have. But back then it's like, if you didn't know stuff, you didn't know stuff. You know, it wasn't that easy to encounter shit. It wasn't like coming at you all the time. Um, right. And I wasn't literate. I wasn't, cult, uh, you know, literate. I, I I, I was an English creative writing minor, but I didn't like literature because I didn't like putting, you know, the words in the mouth of the writer, like, why did they do this? And I thought that was bullshit. And um, so, and I, I didn't, I, I hadn't, I wasn't widely read. And, um, but the minute he, he turned me on to this book, I became the disciple of the book and every single person in there. And I, it, it began my career of, voraciously reading everything in there and then every book by every person featured in there. And mm-hmm. then I started branching out from there in my reading. Um, and all the while with Walt sort of tootling me and, and, but here we were, we were trying to like do stuff and we, we kind of had to get it 
past people. Like, for instance, I was trying to learn how to use dialogue. And, you know, Walt was a great and able teacher. But then we would run up against the editor higher up than us and wanted us to write, he recalled, he said, she said for each quote. You know what I mean? Instead right. of instead of like um, uh, just using it and, and granting that the reporter had shown the notes to the editor. So we would have fights over stuff like that. I remember one time Walt Harrington said, Tom Wolf did this 25 years ago. And the guy said, Tom Wolf was fired for the Washington Post. Um, <laughs> so it was that sort of thing. It did, it's sort of like my eyes were opened by the possibilities of combining my literary desires with this other milieu, which solved the problem that I was a great writer but had nothing to say. You know, mm-hmm. technically, I was, and, and through the years is one, one reason why I would end up in situations where I'm editing people and rewriting people because I'm just like, Technically, I think I'm a good editor because um, I'm really tough on myself okay. and know how to and and I don't I don't spare my darlings just if they're not working they're not fucking working and uh, as an editor I so anyway um, you know so yeah Walt and then on top of that Walt and his wife like basically like adopted me and I was eating dinner at oh, their wow. house several times a week. And when they had their first child, I fucking took their apartment (laughs) uh, and moved into that apartment, you know, as my second apartment. And, uh, you know, and and we've just been close ever since. And I think Walt has also helped to sort of give some legitimacy to the kind of work I do, which was not always recognized. I mean, the new journalism has not always been really accepted. Okay. Um, like now they call it long form and it's this whole big deal and everybody wants to do narrative journalism, but it really did have some, some, you know, poor connotations um, from the news, news angle who thought we writers were just making things up. And then some people did just make things up because they weren't talented enough to pull off this style and, that became a trouble too. Um, but, okay. um, you know, between Walt, the Washington post and going through the cauldron of, of the Janet cook business, um, it was kind of like the best grad school slash first marriage that anyone could ever ask for in terms of learning how to do this thing, which you know, then moving on to Rolling Stone, um, you know, I, I, the Bob Love there. I mean, I didn't even know about full stops um, within stories. What, I used to write that? all in one. Well, like that for us. scenes, writing in scenes, and then it goes dark, and then a okay. new scene starts. I didn't even know you could do that kind of thing. I mean, I, I just really did take this from such a, a point of ignorance <laughs> that I was a blank slate and then I yeah, just started filling it up with Right. Yeah, well I think it was. I didn't have to unlearn any bad habits, that's for sure. Right. Um, but, but I think, and I, I think you were also someone who was very 
flexible and open-minded and you wanted to, you know, you wanted to get into learning from all these amazing people. You weren't this person who had some, some ego or chip on his shoulder, like I know better. And I think that's what makes you even greater. The fact that you were able to do that. Well, you're, you know, actors always talk about this all the time. It sounds goofy, but it's all in service of the work. It's like, it's, if when I'm doing the work, I don't care what time it is, um, what else is happening. Like it's the joy, like, It's the joy Mm -hmm. of being in that. And then it's kind of like if you can show a high jumper, like, no, take off like this, and then you're going to get an extra three inches on your jump, then you're going to do that because all you care about is you're high jumping. And and that's how I've always felt. And, and, you know, partially – trying to be true to myself and having my own style and partially knowing that you're kind of always writing for this one or two people who are in charge and giving you assignments. And, you know, you have to service them. Like when I wrote for GQ, um, it was in the early 90s, and I wrote a big piece about this Janet Cook of the Washington Post who won the Pulitzer for a story that turned out not to be true, who I had been dating for a while and et cetera, et cetera. But when I wrote the story for GQ for this guy, Art Cooper, who was the head of GQ and like kind of like an old school guy, like having like something mentioning a, you know, a hint of her cleavage in the lead for GQ was like, you're writing. That's who my audience was. Art Cooper, you know, he wanted to know about Janet Cook's like, milk chocolate breast kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so over the years, you just, you learn different things from the people you write from. And, um, and that's kind of, and then you like, you try to be like Kobe and like take it to a place where you're a unique sort of practitioner of what you do, knowing at the same time that, there's nothing new under the sun and, you know, nobody's better than everyone. And Mm -hmm. there's plenty of pages to go around. Like I never felt a competition with other writers because like I can't fill up a whole magazine myself. Um, And, and that's just how I always worked it. It's like running from the front of the race and, trying to make myself have that better form that's going to get me that two-second advantage or whatever I can learn, and then just stuff you learn. It's like every time, when you write a piece, every time you go over it, you're like a few hours older and a better writer and find the things that need to be said differently. And Mm -hmm. um, so it's a life's work, I guess. (laughs) No, definitely. And, so in terms of getting these opportunities at, like you said, Rolling Stone, you know, um, you've worked at Vibe, Spy, Interview, GQ, was it just based on you submitting work that you had, or did they have job postings where you applied for, you know, a freelance position? Well, in those days, what happened was you, I would, you would send clips and you'd send a proposal or a list of proposals 
and they wouldn't take any of them usually. And then you'd finally, it was sort of like being a, a salesman. And then you'd mm-hmm. like get your foot in the door and meet the people. And then finally they would like give you an assignment because okay. magazines have changed quite a bit. Yeah, and bring that um, in. It used too. to be that the the job of the, an editor was to cultivate writers and give them and stories. And editors were not people who wanted to be writers. They were people who wanted to be editors. So what okay. they would do is once they found someone who they thought could do a story, they would give you that story idea. And so my thing was you 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 give them story, 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 story. They say, no, 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 no. You keep coming back and you make it nice on them so they don't feel bad that they're always telling you no. And then they finally (laughs) give you something. And at that point, you have to just kick their ass all over the room with that story. You just have to make it so fucking good that there's no looking back. And essentially, that's what I try to do. So I, I, I started out at Rolling Stone when I was still at the post, I wrote a couple pieces on a leave of absence, but then okay. for, for Carolyn White, who was a, who was a legendary editor um, and was married to Richard Ben Kramer, um, who were two of my early, you know, people. And, but Carolyn left. And then what had, ha- what happened with me in a couple of magazines is I'd had a piece in the magazine, but you always need a rabbi at a magazine to keep you in there. Um, so then I had to start over and I mean, I would do stuff like, like Bob Love at Rolling Stone had a subscription to this magazine. I had a monthly column in, in DC called Regardies. I just fucking bought him a subscription and sent it to his, his, his <laughs> office. I mean, nice. uh, I was just, it was always a war of, of getting in. But then what happened was, um, they had such things as contract writers, and once you prove yourself, because the thing was, like, I remember rolling, Bob Love used to get this, um, like, internal questionnaire from Winter Media, and I, I saw it one time by accident, and the questions were, what have you been working on this month? What writers are you working with? What are your favorite stories? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and you sort of figure out that, like, you rise and fall by how you serve this king. Mm-hmm. You know, and so mm-hmm. it's, it, and that becomes like my bat signal, you know, Bob loves head in the, in the, in the light instead of the bat, <laughs> um, you know, and you write for him. And then, and what happened was in the case of Rolling Stone, something I'm proud of, I, I wrote a story, um, which is interesting. It's just, it's just being developed for Hulu. It's, it's called Death of a High School Narc. Um, it's being written okay, by cool. Heather Marion, who wrote Breaking Bad and um, Better Call Saul and uh, The Act. But anyway, wow. uh, so that just shows you how how long that kind of stuff can be. But anyway, I wrote this story, and I wrote like 15,000 words, and they needed to be 7,000. And I remember it was Al Gore was running for president, and he had come to Rolling Stone, so all the big wigs left to go to lunch with Al and they left me alone with my story and said, well, if you can do anything about cutting it, we'd really appreciate it. So like two hours later, they came back and the story was, and my, my policy is like, if they want 7,000 7, words, it's going to be 6,999. Right. And right. Bob Wallace 
was so taken with that, he asked me on the spot if I would become a contributing editor, which meant, nice. you know, I got a contract, which wasn't for a lot in those days, but it was still, you know, eight stories for, you know, 10 grand a story guaranteed, and they paid you every month. Divide by 12. Right, right, right. And, wow. you know, as long as you could stay up with your output, you know, and not get in trouble like certain people did, <laughs> and, you know, which would later happen to me at, at GQ because I wasn't well matched with my editor, but that's another story. Um, you know, so, so I, I became a contributing editor soon after my first story, my second story with them. And that, and then, so that sort of, yes, I have written for a bunch of different one-offs or two-offs or magazines, but it's been the Post, Rolling Stone, six years, six years, six years, six years at GQ, and then Esquire, you know, for the remaining years since 96, okay. I guess it was. Although contract payments ran out, I don't remember. I, I have a mental block for what year, but sometime around 210, 211, 212. We just had them long enough for, for them, for my my wage level to be cemented into my divorce settlement so that I had to pay at the wages I wasn't making, but whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so up for, for 35 years, I had a contract with a magazine basically. That's amazing. And then and, it stopped. And just really quick to pull in today, just cause I think it's interesting because you grew up now, so to speak in both times. I mean, like you said, you grew up in the, the typewriting days when there was no answering machines and you had to pry for things through the mail. And, you know, now we're in such a different world with, you know, the, the internet and digital media. You know, if someone wanted to become a magazine writer today, what would be your advice to that? Or if they wanted to, you know, get involved in print, which unfortunately, even the magazines I love are going out of print. So, you know, what would you say to someone like that? Well, it's like there's like different options now. and There are people like that and, you know, I, there are some guys that I know and, and, you know, I've done a lot of mentoring. That's something that I realize I'm teaching. I, I taught for mm-hmm. six years at Irvine. You see Irvine helped start their, um, uh, they have a literary journalism major there even. Um, okay. And we've published a bunch of textbooks and there are people that want to do it. It's just kind of a different formula. You know, it's like okay. you work for ProPublica, ProPublica, like, joins together with California Sunday or they just, you know, they just join together with uh, the Washington newspaper to win a Pulitzer. It's like things are different now. There are positions. Um, it's harder and there are fewer. But, you right. know, it's, you mentioned the Sager group. Um, yeah, let's talk a little I, bit like about one, that. I, well, I just saw the writing on the wall long ago and, we publish books, so right. uh, that's how we started, and um, and we put the, we put a lot of artists to work publishing books, and that's kind of the idea was all these people sitting around wanting something to do, and if you point to them, they'll do it, and then you know for the first time in my life, like I'm I'm the head in the bat in the bat light. It's like I'm I, I'm my own you know boss that I'm writing towards or whatever, but. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's, again, it's like, 
you have to find what works for you and you have to survive and, and, and thrive. And nobody, one of my favorite, a lot of the quotes, a lot of the things having to do with, with the Sega group, oddly, have to do with the artist Ice Cube, who I interviewed. Uh, a okay. long time ago when he was just getting out of the group NWA and starting his own thing. And as you know, he's a huge mogul now, but he had some early ideas about things. And um, he used to say, he used to talk about harnessing the means of production in a sense of marks, you know, <laughs> or, um, and, and I kind of latched onto that like, he, he, he wanted to do everything himself. I, wanted a, I want a black lawyer. I want my own studio. I want to, you know, I want to do this myself so I have control. That was what he right. was saying to me because he, his other great quote to me was, ain't nobody giving up no ass. Right. You know, which I, right. I, I take to mean like, you know, you got to get it yourself. Right. Ain't nobody yeah, giving absolutely. you nothing. Right. And um, so I, I, and I have, met Ice Cube on one or two occasions since those many years ago um, and have shared with him my respect for these things that he said that came to pass for him and then that I use myself too, but maybe just two artists arriving at the same conclusion that, you know, you have to enable yourself. And that's what the Sega group does. We, find projects and we find a way to make them happen. Some people pay part of it. Some people don't. We like have a different thing for each person. It's like, what can you bring to this project? You know, but there are like human beings that have to do work to create a book. So it costs money. So what's going to, what's the formula here? And, you know, that's what I do. And I, I started the group also because for so many years, people would come to me and I had nothing I could do for them. For a while, I actually had a, a deal with an agent where I would get 1% of the people I would bring to him because I would be getting these proposals and I'd be helping people with things and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So um, the agent never kept paying on that. So that didn't work out. But uh, <laughs> I can't on people to do no, things like that. Like, I mean, and I, and I really, really like hearing what the Sago Group is about. Like you said, it sounds like you know, a while ago, because you, you brought this group to light in around 1984, right? So, I mean, you, you kind of started well, I, this group I, when you were that. I started the idea of the group in 1984, and I was having kind of a bit of a tiff with the editor of the Washington Post magazine. And uh, I don't know who I said it to, but I said, well, he might be the editor of the Washington Post, but I'm the president of the sacred group. It was just kind of like my attitude at the time, right. like going into freelancing, feeling like I'm, you know, it's just like what my, how my parents ruined me in, 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 to be an underachiever at an early age. Like, I'm just as important as he is. I don't care who he is. Like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, you're all, you're all just people. And I think that's like the thing that's aided me in my journalism. Like when I don't care if I talk to a celebrity, a president, the king of Nepal or a drug dealer, I treat them all the same, which is respect from one person to another, you yes, know? And, absolutely. Um, and I think it's the same here where you have to be the master of your own fate because ain't nobody going to help you otherwise. I mean, you might ask for help and receive it, 
but you have to come up with the idea to ask. And um, right. so as things worked out, it was a good idea that, you know, I didn't actually make the Sagan group into a reality other than things like my FedEx uh, account name until um, 2011, I think it was, when we oh, brought okay. out our first collection, which was a collaboration of, with Walt Harrington called mm-hmm. Next Wave, which it was kind of brought out right at the time when everybody thought long-form journalism was going to die, and I knew all these young writers who were writing it doing a great job so that was the first thing we did was bring out a collection of of young writers who have gone on to win lots of stuff um, um all that stuff's on the sacredgroup.net if anybody wants to look we try to keep our books evergreen i'm also very proud of a series we wrote we uh produced with three books um all with the with 50 a little more than 50 of the greatest women journalists um who've written in America over the last 50 years from Lillian Ross and Joan Didion you know all the way up through today's Taffy Ackner and and Gia Tolentino and and Lisa Tadeo um it's just an amazing collection of women's books and um women's writing it's kind of probably don't have time to tell the funny circumstances under which which it developed but um that was an oh, eight-year project give a bullet give a bullet of that because i know your your site has so many different and i i highly recommend people go there because there's something for everyone um you really have a broad scope of a lot of different things there so you yeah, just give the highlight of how right did you did you develop the women well yeah around two around 2011 or 12 um, we went to the Mizzou Graduate Journalism School to present the Next Wave textbook, which had, I think it was five Mizzou graduates um, featured in there. Um, okay. And uh, there were 19 stories in the book, and 16 were by men and three were by women. And when they invited us to the school, none of the women could make it. So essentially, we had a two-day seminar, and on the second day, we had the big session with everybody in front and the whole 250 people, and it was like five guys in the front of the room, including Harrington and myself, and um, the whole room was full of women. And somebody finally asked, like, why are there not women in this book? And the funny thing was is that we'd had two women researchers finding the stories, but we, we, we limited to third person. There were no first person. And at the time there weren't a lot of women writing, you know, journal, kind of narrative journalism, um, which is now completely opposite the case. If you listen to Janet Reitman, will tell you there's no good male long form writers anymore. Um, Um, reporters tend to be bombastic when speaking in public. So I don't, I don't take that as anything, but it is true that it's gone the whole full circle. But anyway, some, some women complained about it. Where are all the women in this thing? I vowed to do something about it. Afterwards, two women came up to me and said they wanted to start a women's magazine and I said, okay, well, if you help me put together a women's collection, then I'll pay you and you can use that money to make the magazine. 
So, um, and that's what we did, and that's how this whole thing started. So, and then eight years later, those women were now, one's a freelance writer and one's a uh, publicist for a, uh, a boutique house, and they did the third, they edited the third collection. So it's a great sort of full circle kind of thing. And, yeah. of course, we were supposed to present the book at Mizzou, you know, at this very same place that they were eight years before, and uh, it was supposed to be in April. Unfortunately. <laughs> oh. yeah. So we did we did get to we did get to present at NYU before that with a few people. Um but that was That's cool. Great. But anyway, I don't I don't think we really got to publicize our women's collection quite enough and um it's almost like by the time we were finished it people were yawning about it when when you know we started the three books, people were like up in arms. So um I don't know if that tells you anything about anything but um we hope our books have a long life they're not huge sellers and we don't we're not very good marketers um i'm better at content um but um so do you guys work find it. do you do you connect them with market like how do they so if you're writing a book with someone or you know you're putting out a collection or whatever it is do they have to go out on their own and find their own kind of marketing agency or someone to help push it or do you guys have some connections well yes we have connections but i think the reality of of book writing has always been that you need to do your own publicity uh, my first three books were big big well they were big six right. back then um and uh you know one the, for my second book they gave me because the first book was a bestseller that they paid me six grand for so the second book they gave me like a, a $9,000 budget for a book tour. And okay. the only things that the, the, the publicists do is they have to get you the readings in New York and DC, but then all the other 39 stops in my car, you know, were set up by me personally. And right. when you do a book right. proposal, there has to be a section that says, what's your marketing? So really, unless you're Stephen King, you know, or have the big book of the summer, then you need to market yourself. Right. And that's kind of okay. what I tell my people. I'm now, luckily, I'm, we're sort of been, ex- we might be expanding into work with this other group, um, this new group with a connection to Hollywood that's trying to do, you know, ebooks, podcast, and podcasts as a way of, of creating TV show ideas. Um, oh, wow. So, They've got some, they've got some connections with publicists and stuff like that, which I'm kind of excited to see how that works. I mean, right now, all the books we've published, and there's 40 or more of them. Not all of them mm-hmm. are on the website. There's one I published for my 90-year-old cousin, um, which is essentially stories about her talking cat, Honey, um, which is available <laughs> on Amazon. But you know, I don't really put that on the shelf, but she's damn proud of it. And, you know, some of what we do is just somebody wants a book. You want a book that bad? Let's make it. You know, and I got to tell you, my best selling writer of all time is named Brant Legg with two G's. And he got way too big for us because he's a great mark. Not that, I mean, he writes his mystery fantasy stuff that I don't really understand much about, but um, he gets on lists with Stephen King. And somehow, because he knows what he's doing, he's on his fourth trilogy, 
Um, wow. His output astounds me. He walks around the coast of Oregon with a tape recorder, uh, writing books. And um, but you know, I, I enabled him to do that, and that's kind of what our our Latin motto means: "Artist, enable yourself." Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's what I try to do. And um, we have kind of a cool like one from column A system um, for doing books. Like if you really want a book done, like what skills do you need? What skills do you have? And we can work something out. Um, You know, some people can copy edit their own book. Some people can proofread their own book. Some people can't do anything. And each of those skills is a skill that requires a person who could use a job. And I, you know, so, so that's what we do. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, like I said, I really enjoyed reading about your company, the services you offer. And just like you said, it's, you know, from working your way up, like you said, from your crawl, walk, run type of, uh, you know, analogy, um, bringing your company to the forefront to help people that, like you said, need services, need support, and want to get to that next level. So, no, it's great. And I also help myself because I feel like this is the one place where I do have the power of yes and no. I mean, you know, I always served at the pleasure of the king and at a magazine, and I never once forgot that, you know, um, you might not agree with something, but they were the boss, and so you did it that way. And But now I'm the boss of something. I'm the boss of me. <laughs> but um, maybe that's the only real path to happiness is uh, making that world sort of small so that you can – have a final say about something, which I don't know, it's a pretty big thing in this world to have a say about something. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great, Mike. Um, Wow. You've shared a tremendous amount. I mean, thank you so much. Your life story, as I said, just, we probably haven't even hit the uh, tip of the iceberg, but um, really interesting (laughs) and um, very unique and, like you said, with the Malcolm Gladwell, which I think is a great analogy, is just bringing in that outlier um, type of theme. And that's what I love to hear with all my guests is, you know, where was their grit? Where was their persistence? Where was that tenacity, which, I, which you found at the post, to get them um, to pursue their passion? And I, I think you really captured that. This is true, and I'm most thankful for you, too, for wanting to listen to me. It always helps a person when someone cares what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that too. I mean, like you said, you'll interview the top of the top or the janitor or the drug dealer. or And I think that's what's so important is, like you said, the, just the respect and, and treating everyone like a, a human. I mean, I won't get into it on the air. We could talk off the air, but I work in corrections um, as a psychologist. It's probably one of the most challenging environments. Um, people have a lot of different opinions about you know, working with prisoners. Um, but again, like you said, you treat them with respect, you treat them like a human being. And um, yeah, so that's my motto too. We're all just people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so. Well, thank you so much this? for taking your time and seeking me out. And, uh, you know, there's 42 years of material to cover if you ever need to wait, waste another hour. I'll be here, hopefully. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, We will definitely talk about at some point down the road, maybe we can come up with a different theme and and hone in on a different aspect of your career or your company. Um, But, yes, you're always welcome back on the show. 
And, um, yeah, please uh, just finish up with letting people know where they can find you on social media and, your, of course, your website again. And then we'll wrap things up for today, and we'll be in touch. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yep. So where can people find you? Oh, you wanted me to tell you. Oh, yeah. I get it. This is this is great <laughs> radio right now. Um, uh, MikeSager.com, M-I-K-E-S-A-G-E-R.com, or the SagerGroup.net. Either one of those places. If you have, if you're interested in the whole publishing thing, obviously the SagerGroup.net will be the best place to go. If you're interested in publishing yourself, um, there's a there's a tab for Tay Aduvia Press, which is Help Yourself Press. And uh, any emails will come to my staff of hundreds and somehow find its way to me, I'm sure. Nice. Well, thank you so much again, Mike. And um, just so you know, if you're interested, there will be a podcast, of course, after this is over, where people can either go to the Blog Talk Radio or go to iTunes. So if anyone wasn't able to tune in today, they can uh, download it or stream it for free at their convenience. And I'd love for people to hear your story. All right. Sweet, and I guess you can send me a link to that. It's actually the same link, but I'll send it to you again. Once, oh, okay, once great. The, yeah, yeah, but I'll, send, I'll still send it Sweet. to you. But I'll post it thank again. you again so much, Mike. It was a pleasure to have you on. It was a pleasure to meet you, and um, hopefully our paths will uh, continue to cross, and who knows, maybe we can work on something down the road. I have tons of different ideas. <laughs> sounds great, and um, thank you to all the listeners out there. Okay, thanks so much again, Mike. Have a great day, and we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Oh, Mike, real quick. Wait, really? Are you still there? I'm still here. Hold on. It looks like there's someone on hold, and I apologize. I've been so focused on you and my notes. Oh, my God. Um, caller. Yeah, well, let's, hey, let's take a caller. Hold on. Hello, you're on with Mike Sager on the Carrie Edelman Show. I apologize if you were on hold for a while. That's quite all right. That's spirituality at work. God bless you both, and... Uh, I wanted to ask a couple of quick questions I saw on the show page that he's considered uh, related to poetry. Do you do things with poetry? And also, it may be a little bit before your time, but I was interviewed in a front-page Wall Street Journal article that triggered an investigation that eventually led to the resignation of Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House in shame, by Jonathan Quitney of the Wall Street Journal. I'd like to know if you were aware of him. Well, I've heard the name, and um, I've heard of all the events you describe of, and I'm I'm happy to to meet a newsmaker. <laughs> yeah, well, I have uh, a number of blockbuster books <laughs> in me. I'm not looking to be an author, but I'm looking to to really shift out of this mainstream media with truth and transparency and ethics and morals. Uh, I have huge visions in working on big projects to transform the entire fields of global economics, education, politics, religion, and more, empowering women and indigenous people globally in the process and rooting out corruption at the same time. And I'd love to also uh, talk with uh, Carrie, too, because I have a, a woman who, she did author a book, she's wonderful gal and she's a veteran and is a, was a former police officer who I'm just coming into wow. contact with uh, and uh, so okay. she's got a lot of potential but the problem is we're very limited with our resources but we have a lot to give well that was, well, I would that was say, definitely a how about ahead, giving Mike. me a 
Yeah, I don't do the email or texting. I don't know if Terry has my number. I can give it to you or at least give you my name, and there are ways you can find my number, but I have no problem in giving it over the air. Yeah, well, yeah, let's not do that. But um, I think, and I, I don't know if Mike's on the same page. I mean, that's how I would do everything is through, I would, yeah, I would direct you through my email to contact me. Um, and I think Mike was going to refer you to his website to reach out to him because that's... Yeah, I, I pulled up the website, but again, I stay in a very creative mode. There's an awful lot on the internet if I can at least share my name and there are ways to come back to my business partner. I could give an email that goes to him where that connection yeah. can develop. I mean, if, if you want to just, yeah, if you want to share your name in the email. Yeah, that would um, be great. I appreciate it whenever... Go uh, ahead. I, uh, Hugh H U G H, last name Trollson is spelled T like Tom, then R A U L S like Sam, E like Edward, N like Nancy, and the email to my partner is uh, trumpingcorruption at gmail dot com, and that would go to a Dave Solano who's a cybersecurity expert also involved in education. We're both Vietnam Air Force Air veterans. Wow. Well, well thank, you, well, for thank your you for your service. Well, yeah, I thank, thank you so you much for, for picking email. up because the, the things Trumping that need to happen have, can happen quickly. <laughs> right. Right. All right, sir. Well, well yeah. thank you so much for calling today. All, All right. Thank you, thank you very much. Take care now. Take care. Okay, and thank care. you, Carrie. Okay, Mike, thank you so much. We'll be in touch. And, um, yeah, thanks again for the interview. Awesome, awesome interview with you. Talk again okay. soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, again, thank you, everyone, for tuning into the Carrie Edelman Show. Uh, phenomenal interview today with uh, the like I said, best-selling author and also award-winning journalist, Mike Sager. Um, again, if you tuned in late for any reason, please feel free to check out the podcast after it's over. You can download it on iTunes or just go to the Blog Talk Radio website. Also, there's about 250 interviews I've done. As I said, a lot of musicians, comedians. I'm going to start bringing in some more authors, um, just some interesting people that are from the background, like Mike said. I, I don't care if it's a type A I mean, not type A, that was a 40 step. <laughs> an A-list celebrity and or someone that's just an ordinary person, so to speak. Um, definitely like to hear people's life stories, and that's what my show is about, to support them and promote them. So if you want to follow me on the social media sites, I'm at Carrie Edelman on Instagram and Twitter. You can also follow me on Facebook. Uh, I have two personal pages, and as the my show name is The Carrie Edelman Show on um, Facebook, so you can like that there. And again, that's where I post a lot of my stuff. Like Mike said, a lot of this is about, you know, self-promotion and, and getting your name out there. It's, it's definitely a lot of groundwork you have to do. So please go to the sites, and that's where you'll see my upcoming interviews that I will be scheduling in the future. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Greatly appreciate the support, and have a great day.